Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganari and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode will be an interview about Jaina epistemology with Marie-Hélène Goris, who is Senior Teaching Fellow at SOAS in London and at Ghent University. Hi, Marie-Hélène. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Can you first say something about who we're going to be discussing here? Who are the major Jaina thinkers you want to discuss? Roughly when do they live? Although I bet you're going to say we don't know. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, where do they sit within the broader debating network of schools in Indian philosophy? Yes, with pleasure. Several backgrounds must, must first be introduced before I can properly speak about Jaina logicians and epistemologists. So first of all, the thinkers I drew on in my research contributed to the development of a highly regulated debating hall. So as you must know, this debating hall was center stage in the paradigm of Indian philosophy uh, of the period that goes roughly to the end of the second century common area to the 11th century. And this centrality is due to the fact that next to perceptual knowledge and to the correct interpretation of a sacred text, the best method in town to have a proper piece of knowledge is that of inferential reasoning. So I am working on the characterization of this inferential reasoning. One thing that is important to insist on is that in this framework, logical considerations what is necessity, uh, what are the properties of relations, etc. Uh, these considerations are directed towards epistemological purposes. So they are part of a broader concern to clearly define the functionings of the means accessible to us to acquire new knowledge. And that, in turn, epistemological considerations are directed towards soteriological purposes, so that they are part of a broader concern to clearly define the way I should behave in order to fully realize my own nature. So second, there were three main participants in these debates. So the Buddhist philosophers, the Hindu philosophers of the Nyaya, Vaisheshika and uh, Mimamsa traditions, and Jain philosophers. So I am working on Jain philosophers here. And despite its pervasive importance in the Indian culture, Jainism is largely unknown in the West. So let me take uh, one minute to, to introduce it. Jainism is a religious and philosophical tradition whose last great spiritual leader uh, is Mahavira. Uh, he lived in the 5th century uh, before common area. And like Buddhism, Jainism emerged at a time at which there were reactions against the ritualistic focus in Vedic corpus and that there were alternatives uh, centered on an inner fight uh, based on ascetic practices. So nowadays there are giants all over the world, uh, although the giant community is mainly located in Midwest uh, India. Okay, so the picture you've given us of the Jainas there is that they're one among several schools who are debating issues that are by now familiar to us, especially from the Nyaya school, because they also have a theory of inference and what we might even call scientific reasoning. Yes. The Buddhists also yes. have a theory of inference. We might get on later to what the difference is between the Buddhist and the Jaina theory of inference. 
Um, and that is what I want to focus on. But before we get into the epistemology part, let me ask you something about the subject of the knowledge that we can achieve through inference. The Jainas believe that we have a soul, and the soul is presumably the subject of knowledge. So what is this soul like, and how does it relate to the material world? Oh, yes, sure. So um, Jainism is, as I said, first of all, a soteriology. So metaphysical considerations are subordinated to ethical ones, so in order to secure a human responsibility, basically. So this uh, giant metaphysic uh, should allow a persisting self-identity. This is a very important thing and an influential active self. And one way uh, they could achieve this uh, is through a dualism in which on one hand you have souls, which are um, single-celled independent subjective entities. So they are isolated entities whose essence is that of consciousness. And on the other half, uh, on the other end, there is non-soul stuff. Objectivity consisting in matter and organizational principles thereof. So this is the uh, subject of knowledge, this soul, isolated soul. Um, now within the material realm, the giant focus is on karma. Uh, which is a subtle matter whose specific property is to develop uh, the consequences of our virtues or unethical acts. So since our acts witness the desire of the self toward external heterodox objects, uh, through karmic matter, our acts determine the form of a given limited mental state. And so the core problem uh, in Jainism is not to explain but to get rid of this interaction between karmic matter and souls. Because what is important is to reach a non-limited state of consciousness. What I mean is that uh, in principle, you, we are all of us, we are omniscient. But it is only uh, thanks to the process of uh, getting rid of this karmic matter that we can um, realize our omniscient nature. And this is also important for epistemological purposes because uh, Jain grants that their spiritual leaders have reached omniscience and then their corpus is seen as an authoritative one. So, for example, Mahavira, they would understand as someone who had managed to achieve liberation even in this life while still in a body by divesting himself of connections to bodily concerns so much that he recovers this original omniscience that we all have. Is that right? Exactly. And not only uh, he did that, but uh, the very nature, uh, the very essence of his omniscience is such that uh, if spontaneously uh, he taught what he's just learned uh, to every um, body. Oh, right. So it just uh, sort by, of flows out of him. Yeah, as a by emitting yeah. like a divine sound for for some of the Digambaras, uh, mm. Chain thinkers. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that it's so crucial to the Jains that the soul is this subsisting uh, kind of independent substance, mm. because I, I suppose that a lot of people would assume that the Jaina philosophical theories would be more like the Buddhist philosophical theories because they're both, you know, 
rejecting Vedic orthodoxy, as, as people sometimes say. But actually, at least on this point, they're diametrically opposed to the Buddhists. Yes, definitely. Yes, exactly. And in fact, yeah. it's what you said sounds in a way a little bit more like something like Samkhya, where you have a, an independent, immaterial soul, and this is being opposed to a material kind of subject in which this soul can reside. Yes, it is actually closer to Samkhya and also to some of the Nyaya Vaisheshika's uh, considerations. And um, actually, in a way, that, that kind of uh, feature of Jainism, where they have features that remind us of all these different other Indian schools, that maybe goes along with their epistemology, because their epistemology in a way seems to be a way of saying that in a way everybody is right. <laughs> so this is their uh, famous theory of non-one-sidedness. And maybe we could think about it as a kind of perspectivism. So they talk about naya vada or viewpoints. The thought is, I guess, that whatever anybody knows or thinks is always known or thought from a certain viewpoint or perspective. So I can only attain truth from my own perspective. Uh, is that basically right? That's the theory? Yes, it is. It is. Um, Jain epistemologists uh, develop this uh, theory called Anikantavada, uh, the theory of non-one-sidedness, which leads to the perspectivism you've just described. So I would trust uh, this theory from the fact that uh, Jain doctrine is a philosophy of synthesis of different metaphysical theories of ancient India. So, no, Jain are realist philosophers. So, they explain the plurality of coexistent yet apparently conflicting valid epistemic stances uh, on the knowable. They explain this from the complexity of the knowable itself. So, the complexity is within the knowable, and this is this which led Jain philosophers to develop uh, original semantic approaches. So among them, uh, this uh, theory of viewpoints, uh, but also there is a theory of angle of an analysis, which is the same type of theory in the hermeneutical um, uh, considerations. So that's like if you're interpreting texts or something? Yes, and especially text of monastic rules. I see. So mm -hmm. if it says... Um if some monastic orders say that you should be naked and others say that you shouldn't? Is that a good example? Yes, it? it is. It is. It is a good example. And, and maybe you can contextualize both claims by saying that maybe the nature of the recipient is not the same. And then they are going towards the same purpose, thanks to those different set of practices. And this is actually one, one of the main divergence between Mahavira and the previous uh, spiritual uh, teacher, whose name is Parshva. Mm -hmm. and, and, and to go back to the epistemological uh, side of it, um, what does it mean for a claim uh, to be only contextually valid? So maybe we, we should take examples. Um, all examples that Jain philosophers take um, are about claims from over epistemological traditions. For for example, the Buddhist insistence on momentariness is one representative of a perspective that considers firstly the most specific aspect of the knowable. So it does say something deep on the transient character of phenomena. And it is important to say this because human knowledge requires the recognition of common feature, but then we can uh, stop or focus on different uh, points from the more specific to the more general ones. So 
Buddhists would stop on the more specific focus, but it is only a partial correct um, explanation of the world because it fails to give a complete account. For example, it does not enable to think a persisting self and an ethical responsibility. And Jains uh, go further because even perspectives that recognize different aspects of the knowable can fail. For example, uh, Jains are very eager to point out that Nyaya Vaisheshika are wrong when they consider substance, like for example a table, and qualities like enjoyability, because I can touch it, um, are two distinct entities and that they are linked thanks to the relation of inheritance. Because for the giant theory of identity indifference, there is one single complex entity which can be grasped under its substantial or its quality aspect. So there is a whole fluidity which is also manifest in their atomist uh, physics. Atoms are all the same and they can develop given specific characteristic and they evolve into the five elements. So this is how uh, you can conceive this identity indifference uh, theory. Okay, so let me see yeah. if I understand this. So you, you were saying that the, the Buddhist theory that every that we only exist for a moment, mm. so there's no enduring self, yes. they would say, well, that's not completely wrong because there is something momentary about our existence, but also it's not the whole story. Exactly. And, yeah. and But on the other hand, you're saying it's not like they just say, all theories about everything are correct because when people insist on differentiating, for example, an underlying substance and a property, like the Vaisheshika mm -mm. metaphysical position, they say, no, no, that's wrong because actually you're just thinking about the same object in two different ways as a substance and as having a property. So, so actually what their overall view amounts to is that you have these complex entities which can only be understood from lots of different perspectives and they think the other schools have usually only managed to get one perspective at best. Yes, yes. Uh, one thing that that makes me wonder is whether what they are talking about is really just philosophical theories or whether this whole theory of non-one-sidedness is supposed to apply more broadly than that. For example, we're both sitting in chairs, mm -mm. so would they apply their theory of non-one-sidedness to my belief that we're both sitting in chairs and would they say well yeah in a way you're both sitting in chairs but that's only one perspective on a more complex situation or are they really only thinking about philosophical theories here they are focusing on uh, philosophical theories and, and and especially they are focusing on the permanence uh, or not of uh, metaphysical entities like soul but uh, if you can uh, find some practical value of it, there is absolutely no problem to use this perspectivism in everyday life. For example, this has been pointed out especially by Sangadasha, a 6th century commentator on monastic rules. Uh, he said that uh, yeah, these uh, statement, statements that are under-specified can prove quite useful to adapt monastic rules, which are too strict thanks to a wise uh, contextual interpretation. Okay, that goes back to something you mentioned before, which is that they yeah. apply one-sidedness to interpretation yeah. of monastic ritual. So for, for this example of the chair, I don't think of a, a useful, uh, yeah, practical... Um, I cannot think of a practical usefulness of it, but for example, in court, you can 
say, okay, I have not been acting as a citizen, but are an ethical agent mm -hmm. with another kind of uh, yeah set of underlying rules right or i might Something have like one this, set of yeah. responsibilities as a father and as another response yes. set of responsibilities as a philosophy teacher or something so something like this right yeah, i guess you could apply it to politics too maybe yes so, okay yeah, yeah, so it's yeah. actually a very powerful it, it, idea yes it is mm. yeah um it seems though that there's an objection one could make to this idea which is that they seem to be claiming that the theory of one-sidedness of non-one-sidedness is correct so what i mean is aren't they kind of contradicting themselves by insisting that non-one-sidedness in other words this idea that all truth is uh, involves taking a perspective on things they're not saying that that's one certain perspective on things among others they're saying that that's the correct epistemological theory so aren't they being inconsistent by not applying their own epistemological theory to itself? Well, first of all, the, the, yeah, and the theory of non-one-sidedness would be like meta-epistemology. Uh, so in that sense, the same way that the rules governing the movement of spatial objects do, do not apply to, to space as a condition of possibility of it, maybe we can say that the rules of uh, epistemological uh, theories do not apply to... Uh, theory of what would be a good epistemological theory. But you are right by pointing the fact that they do develop uh, yeah, an epistemology and also a conception of the world, properly speaking. And they also and defend it against rival epistemologies, right? Yes. So f my only way to, to make sense of it and is to say that the complex object that they are trying to know to get to know uh, is complex in such a way that the only way to be able to know it to, is to disregard any particular focus, to have an awareness of the manifold manifestation of its particular and universal aspect. So, um, in a way, they are practicing non-one-sidedness, uh, even in their uh, developing of their conception of the world. Right. Yeah. And I guess the other thing is that they, the way that they defend one non-one-sidedness against one-sided theories is to attack the one-sided theories. It's not to give some kind of uh, a priori argument in favor of non-one-sidedness. <laughs> yeah. Is that right? Uh, yes, they do attack one-sided theories, but they do not only attack them um, because they are not non-one-sided theory. They also completely attack them as an incoherent uh, theory or theory that do not hold some... So sort of like Nagarjuna would attack uh, various Vedic lines of thought by providing skeptical arguments. They would think his skeptical arguments expose the limitations of one-sidedness. Is that right? Mm. Yes, the, the, the only way then to, to positive... There is no positive way to establish non-one-sidedness, but at least one can refute all one-sided claim. I see. In, in that way, yes, it is close to Nagarjuna. Okay. Mm. But it's not exactly a skeptical theory, because they're not saying knowledge is impossible. What they're saying is that knowledge is possible, but only if you are willing to adopt a variety of viewpoints on things. Yes, and we are even able as a human beings to 
to draw an extensive and exhaustive classification of the, these different types of stance on the knowable. Mm -hmm. So they have a deep faith in knowledge in that sense. And uh, well, I suppose one sign of their faith in knowledge is that they do believe that we can engage in inferences, which is something yes. you mentioned before. And this is an area where they have a polemic against Buddhist theories of inference. Uh, there's an example, actually, which I really like, which you mentioned in one of, once in one of your papers, which is that from noticing that a mango has a certain color, I can infer that it will have a certain taste because if it looks ripe, it will taste ripe. In other words, it will taste sweet. And the Buddhists and the Jains have different ways of accounting for that kind of inference. Can you explain the difference? Uh, yes. So, um, yes. So, of course, um, I would like to s to know if a mango will have the taste of a ripe mango before I taste it, because I w I want to first know it before I pay for it and before I'm allowed to to taste it. So, one good way to know if it has the taste of a ripe mango uh, is to reason from this piece of evidence that it has the color of a ripe mango. Uh, and then to uh, to try to see if I can know that there is the necessary relationship between the color of the mango and the taste of the mango. So for uh, Buddhist thinkers, and especially for Dignaga, so 5th, 6th century, the color of the mango is a good piece of evidence if there are uh, three conditions uh, that are fulfilled. So the mango... Uh, under consideration, it has indeed uh, this color of a ripe mango, but also that every time I have tasted a ripe mango, uh, it had this color, and also the fact that I have never tasted a not ripe mango uh, that had this color of a ripe mango. So, so here giants, but actually not only them, there are uh, many thinkers who, are, who will show that these conditions are not sufficient nor necessary because this state of affair potentially describes an accidental and not a necessary relation. So for the giants, a piece of evidence is good only if it is known as being impossible overrise. Anyata uh, nupapati. And this is known by means of a separate type of knowledge uh, called tarka which functions as a direct discernment of universal. And so, as you can imagine, the Buddhist uh, philosopher Dharmakirti, uh, 6th century, uh, refutes the need of postulating such an extra uh, types of knowledge. And he explains that um, a piece of evidence is a good one if it can be shown that there is an essential or a causal relationship between the taste and the color of uh, the mango. So it does give the foundation, the antique foundation, to valid reasoning by doing so. So in our example, it is a combination of um, two causal relationships. So first, I know that this mango is ripe because this state of ripeness, in as much as, as it is the cause of this color, is the only explanation of the presence of this specific color. So second, I know that uh, it tastes, uh, it, it tastes, sorry, as a ripe mango by means of the same reasoning. And here, giant disagree because they argue that sound inferences are not necessarily based on essential and causal relationships, but that the relations of, um, 
co-presence, uh, of which the taste and the color of the mango are representatives, and that the relations of uh, succession, for example, the rising of the stars, all those relations also can serve as a basis to sound inferences. And actually, this acceptance of inferences based on the succession or co-presence of phenomena indicates that Jain philosophers grant a deeper regularity of worldly phenomena than Buddhists do. Let me see then if I've got yeah. this. So there's actually three positions you discussed. So Dignaga's position is basically that as long as these two properties, the color and the taste, always are found together, then I can infer from one the other. So as exactly. long as the color always comes with the taste and vice versa, then I can infer the nice sweet taste from mm -hmm. the nice ripe color. Okay. And then Dharma Kyoti says, no, no, no. You need to have some kind of underlying cause. So you need to assume that the state of being ripe gives rise to both the color and the taste, and that's what guarantees that it will have the right taste if it has the right color. And the Jains say that Dharma Kirti is correct to say that Dignaga's position isn't enough, so it's not enough to just have the two properties always coming together, but you don't have to appeal to some kind of underlying nature. All you can, it's enough to say that um, you can infer the taste from the color just on the basis of past experience. So it's something more like um, inference based on um, induction. So you can just refer to past experiences and say, well, in the past, that color has always gone together with this kind of taste. And so I can infer from this, ta from this color this taste. Is that right? Yes, it's exactly this. Okay. Yeah. This is one of the numerous examples of what is called logical analysis um, in the classical Indian uh, debating hall. And after Dharmakirti, it mainly pertains to answer the following question, what are the exact properties between which a necessary relation holds? So, yes, it is also mainly concerned with metaphysic, uh, yeah, metaphysical topics. So, for example, uh, does the property of being an effect uh, is uh, sufficient to necessarily presuppose the concept of having a conscience producer. So, and if yes, one can develop a proper argumentation to prove the pervasive action of a god in the world. So this is, when we speak about logic in India, this is all uh, it is about. Yeah, um, okay. The pervasion of one property into another one. Yeah. I have to say that if we're really talking about necessary yeah. inferences, I'm totally on Don Makirti's side. Yes, of course. Because it seems to me that the, the, the critics of Dignaga are right to say mm -hmm. that the mere fact that two properties always are found together doesn't mean that they have to be found together, right? Because maybe so far we've mm -hmm. just always found them together, but maybe they'll come apart at some point. And also, in, famously, induction doesn't actually seem to license necessary inference. No, Whereas no, no, no. Dharma can say, well, look, there's an underlying nature or cause here, and it necessitates that whatever has the ripe color has the ripe taste as well. So, so exactly. So Dharma Kirti goes to universal relations to necessary ones. And so if I know that uh, there is an oak, I know that there is a tree. And even though every tree is destroyed, uh, this will be still be true. Whereas when the giant says, when I know that one star rises, I know that the other one will rise. You can say, oh, well, but if what happens if 
the second stars die, then uh, it won't be true anymore. So the only uh, way to make sense of the fact that giant philosophers do want also necessity and not only universality is to say that they grant such a, a regularity of worldly phenomenon and a worldly phenomena that uh, at the next time that the universe will manifest, the nature of the stars is such that the one will succeed the other as it did. So okay. that that's my way to make sense of it because they they want uh, necessity to. So they would appeal to the theory of world world cycles yes, in the end to explain yeah. how in this induction inductive inference could actually license necessary claims. Exactly, uh, that's yeah. really interesting. Okay, um, so before we close, let me go back to something you've mentioned a few times, which is that this is all being done in a, the context of ethics and what you were calling a soteriology. In other words. They're interested in liberation, uh, freedom from suffering, just like everybody else. Yes, in yes, India. yes. <laughs> uh, and I, I suppose that some listeners might have a hard time seeing. In fact, I might have a hard time seeing <laughs> how the ideas we've <laughs> been related, we've been discussing, relate to themes about ethics and liberation. So, what's the connection there? So, well, um, f the first connection, which has been regularly. Um, discussed is that the theory of non-one-sidedness uh, is an intellectual non-violence. So that is to say the intellectual versant of the theory according to which one should not harm other beings. And this is at the very core of Jainism and that is what inspired Gandhi too. Uh, but this is not very convincing because even though revile, rival theories are in principle uh, partially good, uh, as we have seen, uh, this does not apply to giant theories, which are completely good. And also, most of the time, rival theories are entirely dismissed and not only partially. At best, other theories are assimilated as part of China theory. And actually, this, uh, by the way, this strategy... Um, uh, permits giants to cross sectarian lines um yeah in many many times so uh, the number of borrowing that giant philosophy perform to other trends is, is simply impressive so so this is would not be a good explanation of the link between ethical uh, principle and um and non yeah because if if the whole thing is well i'm non-violent so i don't want to argue with people or deny that they're correct why would they spend so much time refuting these other yes, theories? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So, so this is not what they are doing here. No, we can say that the three ethical principles of Jainism are non-violence, uh, non-attachment, and non-absolutism. And in that perspective, when practicing non-absolutism, one is also acting with a special care and is also realizing the fact that everything is interconnected and by the way, the development of interpretative techniques linked with non-one-sidedness also brings the same type of recognition of the interconnected character of everything. And this can help uh, in the avoidance of further inflow of karmic matter, in as much as we stop desiring um, an external heterodox object, since there is this uh, interconnective uh, paradigm. So at least in that sense, the practice of perspectivism is definitely part of this ethical behavior we've been talking the, about. So the ethical maxim that they're following isn't don't be violent. The ethical maxim they're following is don't have a limited set of concerns, but rather extend your concern to everything because everything is interconnected. And that goes along with this idea of seeing the complexity of the world from a maximally 
well-rounded set of viewpoints. Is that basically what you mean? Yes, yes, this is what I meant. Okay, yeah, yeah. okay that's really interesting. So actually, I think Jaina epistemology is quite attractive in many ways. Good. <laughs> I'm convinced. Um, I'm not sure I'm convinced about their theory of inference, but I like the epistemology, so that's good. Um, thank you very much for coming on to the show to tell us about it. Thank you. Uh, and please join us next time here on the History of Philosophy in India. <laughs>